don't allow yourself to be destroyed, but you do, if you're a Christian, you remember the great example that we were given, that um, the person who was destroyed but said in the process of it, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Hello and welcome to Confessions. I'm Giles Fraser. This is the podcast where I'm joined by an interesting and well-known guest in an attempt to find out what it is that makes them tick. I'm going to try and drill down into their core beliefs to understand better who they are and what they're on about. Today, it's a pleasure to be joined by uh, Sir Roger Scruton, um, eminent philosopher who's written on an extraordinarily diverse range of subjects from conservatism to wine to music to green philosophy to sex... Uh, aesthetics, housing. There's not much you haven't written about. Well, uh, there are some fields I have not yet explored, uh, but they're trembling in anticipation. (laughs) Well, um, very good to uh, have you here for Confessions. The the place we normally start with our guests is to ask them to say a little bit about their background and uh, perhaps their family background and, and how maybe their values have grown out of where they've come from. So perhaps you'd say a little bit about that. Yes. Uh, I come from what I suppose is a lower middle class background. My father was um, born into the working class in Manchester in the slums, and he never forgot that, uh, nor did he ever wish to betray it. That was his, um, his lifelong guide you know what what was it that enabled his family to live through the depression a family of eight children two of whom died but um and to remain sort of attached to a sense of who they are and where they should be and he he conceived in his very very difficult childhood deep love of england and that was of course common to that generation with, with who went through the Second World War, but he settled ultimately in in the south, in High Wycombe, Marlow area, in Buckinghamshire, where he had met my mother in the war, and became a fervent conservationist. So that was one of the things that I uh, um, absorbed from him. Uh, I also absorbed, in in another sense, his passionate socialism and class warrior attitude, um, and very quickly, because of the virulence of it uh, and his antagonism to my um, going to grammar school and so getting above my station, came to realise that I was on the other side. You were a class traitor. Yeah, I was a tra- class traitor. I hated being a class traitor. I loved the working class as much as he did, but I recognised that they were human, um, just like the middle class, and one had a choice. Did one go up? Or down, and uh, you know, for me, aged fourteen, it was definitely up. Um, but but, was it, what about your mum? My mother was sort of, uh, she was uh, suburban London middle class, very. She she was an orphan, um, you know, and very uh, brought up by an aunt, who was a Plymouth brother. Um, oh, wow. uh, yes, and it's very strict. She wouldn't allow uh, toys or jokes. She didn't, perhaps didn't have the intellect required by jokes, uh, but nevertheless, uh, this was it was helpful to her to recognise that jokes were evil anyway. Wow. Uh, and so my mother was brought up in a very intimidating way. Um, and my father, um, who was a prize intimidator, 
intimidator took advantage of this. So she was very much in the background uh, and um, a, a, a utterly sweet, innocent um, uh, and somewhat oppressed person. I mean, it seems to me already the way in which you particularly describe your father, um, those the, the sort of the idea of solidarity being, mm. you know, working class solidarity from Manchester. But that idea of solidarity and the importance of solidarity of the we yeah. is something that's that's very prominent in your work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, well, it's not just the we, it's the, the, the search for home. Oh, you know, the Heimkehr, as the Germans put it. Um, that has been a motive in my life, partly because our, our family was uh, unhappy because of my father's unhappiness, and it was, uh, we, it was blown apart, really, by that. So that as soon as I'd got my place in Cambridge, um, age 17, I, I, I left. I ran away to London, uh, and... Um, didn't ever really go back, except when my mother fell um, um, fatally ill with cancer, and I went back to look after her. But I, it was very—it was a very, very difficult time for me. Did you feel, I mean, deracinated in some way? I mean, if, if, if you're the, the story is a story of movement from Manchester yes. to High Wycombe, and then you yeah, know, well, out of your class, as it were. Yes. Oh, I was deracinated. That's absolutely true. But like so many people, of course. Um, Interesting enough, I've just been in um, in Paris, um, where I went to a meeting of a of a, a sort of um, little group within the Republican Party there, called Le Sens Commun, who who uh, wants to rebrand French the French centre right as conservative. So they invited me to give a talk about this, and. I, I spoke to them about Simon Weil, the French philosopher who wrote <coughs> the, the, the famous book published after her death, L'Enracinement, well, The Need for Roots, we, we describe it as. Uh, and it, it went down incredibly well. And every, there were so many people there for whom that book is still important. Uh, and the idea of L'Enracinement is, uh, I think, going to be, you'll see more and more the the, the the point to which French right-leaning people will turn. And um, I, I came across this book when I was a teenager uh, and was deeply impressed by it. And I suppose that has been something that I've that has guided me ever since. And so, I mean, if, if you, you're often described as a... Well, you have been described as a paleo-conservative. I guess that's what the Americans yes. would des yes. describe you as. But that has a sort of... Uh, um, that always brings to mind to me the whole idea of a sort of conservatism of place and rootedness. And yes, uh, that that uh, <clears throat> that certainly is there in my thinking. Um, but I, I'm I'm very I think unlike the ordinary um, English conservative. First of all, in in having come to conservatism by a a path which is essentially bohemian. You know, I'm not, a, I was a wanderer and um, I became a conservative only in my, when I was 21, in my encounter with the uh, 1968 in Paris. You know, that was... That so was, was your road to Damascus. Yes, and, and it was de Gaulle more than anybody else whom I felt get, um, uh, typified the thing that I would want to put in the place of the radical left 
who were dominating things then as they dominate things now. So give, give me the Roger Scruton view of conservatism in a couple well, of minutes. Can we do that? Uh, OK. Um, I've try- uh, it's interesting you should ask that because I've, I've tried to give it so many times in my life. And when I've done it, I, and it comes out in hard covers, and I turn over the pages, I think, no, not it at all. <laughs> um, uh, it, it is, of course, an attempt to articulate <clears throat> the search for home and for roots uh, and to reconnect to the inheritance of culture, law, uh, um, religion, uh, and, um, and, and being, being together, all that. Um, but in, in my case, <clears throat> it also involves a, a definite move against the socialist norm. You know, I, I, although I, I'm not a free market uh, fanatic or anything like that. I do uh, esteem individual responsibility in a sort of enlightenment way, and I think that that it's through taking charge of one's life and looking after one's responsibilities uh, as they occur in the course of that life that one really lives properly, and that means getting away from uh, the dependence on the state uh, and rediscovering the forms of social order which grow from below. Uh, so that, um, and in that sense, I'm a bit like a classical liberal, and um, and yet, uh, of course, because of my um, essentially, I suppose, intellectual approach, uh, I um, I esteem all kinds of cultural products which take play no role in the politics of conservatism. You know. So there's a ten- there's, there's, there's a tension there, or the, the, there may be a tension there. Uh, to me, between the classical liberal and the conservative, yes, um, one being focused on individual responsibility, often expressed in terms of human rights and yeah. and all of and that sort of stuff, and then the sort of and the community and the thing. communitarian type of yes. Roger Scruton. Yeah, uh, well, I, I think that they one has to reconcile these things. For us, we are heirs to the Enlightenment. You don't go back from something like that. You know, um, and I agree with Kant. It is the the time of mankind's majority when we finally take full responsibility for our lives and don't lay the burden of it uh, at God's doorstep. Um, it doesn't mean that one doesn't accept the ultimate uh, uh, um, sovereignty of God, but still, uh, um, life in this world is a life that is for us to lead through our own choices. And that Enlightenment view means that one, I, I think one steps back from putting religion in the place of the, uh, in the central, central place of community building and tries to find all those other networks through which people are reconciled to each other and live side by side. And that's a great achievement of Western civilization that we've done that. And Islam has found it very difficult to do that. Islam places God much more centre stage in well, community exactly. building. Yeah, uh, and indeed submission to, to God's will is the premise from which communities are supposed to flow. And that, in, that makes it very difficult, of course, uh, for Muslims to live side by side with those who don't accept that premise. We find it a bit easier. But it, of, of course, like them, uh, I very much regret the... The, the sort of atheist culture that has grown as a result of the Enlightenment. You know, and I can understand entirely why 
they feel not just threatened by it, but but polluted. You know that that those human relations which ought always to have a a God acknowledging part to them, like sexual relations, uh, um, are sort of cl- cl- cleansed completely of that in our society today, and the result is offensive to to Muslims and ought to be more offensive to us than it is. I find, I mean, it's not something you're allowed to say or you're not supposed to say in sort of liberal society, I guess. Um, but I, I spend a lot of time in the Middle East. My wife is Israeli, but I spend mm. um, quite a lot of time in other parts of the Middle East. And I and actually, I feel I find myself feeling extremely comfortable in mm. in in a, a Muslim society. Yes, I lived in the Yemen for a while, and I sort of loved it. And I I, I and I feel. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not that I share the values so much. It's just that strong sense of of togetherness under God, which you say yes. is a part of the yeah. enlightenment that you know that moved away from. But yes. I find that um, yeah, I agree. It's um, the, the the just the the piety and the the courtesy that comes from piety, the recognition. I that, think that's yeah exactly right. Mm. I rather love that really. Yes, and, uh, no, I agree. You're 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 often you're often sort of uh, you know one of the things that said said against you is uh, is is that you have a problem with Islam. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just one of those you know it's one of those things that's thrown out and so yeah, forth. Yeah. So I'm quite glad to hear you say that because uh, I, I, I I only have the problem that everybody has, which is that every now and then um, people Muslims uh, are um, prone to commit crimes in the name of their God. Uh, uh, this is, one wants to think, this is because they've misunderstand and uh, misunderstood what the commandments of that God are. But of course it is um, something which we can't turn away from. That, that uh, there are ways of understanding Islam which become a threat to all <coughs> those who don't accept the premise. But there is a way in which Islam plays a role uh, in our society, as a sort of rallying point for a, a certain sense of, you know, we stand. I mean, for conservatives, it used to be communism, yeah, and yeah. now it's it's uh, yeah, Islam. It's, and there's a sense in which you're rallied to some, you know, yeah, I don't sense think, of purpose yes, by yeah, these two by, by, by c- c- casting Islam as the the enemy. You mean? Yes. Yes, I'd, I'm not sure that, that is really true of. British conservatism. I don't think it has ever been that. I mean, people have reacted uh, negatively to those aspects of Islam to which one should react negatively. You know, the fact that that there isn't that there isn't that self-correcting, self-doubting, dis, um, open discussion that all Christians have about their faith. Uh, and one needs that in in this particular moment. Everybody recognises this, you know. Um, and um, how to how to achieve that is, of course, a great question. Uh, one won't achieve it by conf- confrontation. One will achieve it perhaps if one can open the dialogue somehow. And there are, it's a very complicated question. This. Uh, the, the invention of this, the category of Islamophobia, has not helped. the The idea that if you have doubts about Islam, that this is a kind of phobia, like xenophobia, you know, some kind of pathological state of mind. Um, 
uh, and I fully, I totally object, uh, reject all that. I reject the whole way in which political discussions now have have lapsed into name calling, just taking taking labels and sticking them on people. This is how the Nazis and the communists worked, and look what they did. They they set. Uh, a, a kind of, they placed a kind of bomb in the middle of society and then blew it up. I, I, I completely agree with you about that culture of denunciation we have. Mm. But I, there's a little part of me which uh, I still, I'm still not convinced against Islamophobia mm. insofar as I am convinced there is such a thing as anti-Semitism and that there is mm. a... Uh, and that, that there does seem to me to be a number of parallels between what we call Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. Yeah. Is, that a, is that a mistaken... I, th- well, I think it is, because uh, anti-Semitism, for a start, is condemning people on the grounds of their their genetic origins. Uh, uh, and that's how it's oh, understood. I see. So, it's, so there's no genetic origins to, to Islam? No, yeah, I mean, yeah. Islam is a faith, and yeah. it's a, um, a, a faith of, in, which contains whole... Uh, sections uh, that, that we can accept... Uh, that anybody would accept, um, and uh, and also other sections which are open to discussion, and some which I think it would be quite reasonable to reject, and that's true of all faiths probably. Um, and the invention of the word Islamophobia was it, it coincided with the moment when people really wanted to raise these questions, uh, you know, and that was an attempt to stop them doing so, to stop discussing. You know what it is about Islam that makes it possible for someone to to murder three thousand people in the name of Allah. You know that's a perfectly reasonable question. It is, and all Muslims have got to face it and give us the, their answer. And my Muslim friends are perfectly cl- clear about it. You know yep. they give their answer, and it's the one that I want. C- can we just return to this uh, this question that I just asked you before about the the reconciling the sort of um, uh, the Enlightenment I part of your thinking yes. and the conservative we part of your yes. thinking. And, um, I mean, I guess I want to... I mean, I imagine part of the role that Hegel plays in your thinking is that Hegel allows a sort of a dialectic, as it yes. were, or a, a way of bringing things that look like they're opposites uh, into some sort of, uh, you know, into some sort of common space. Yes. Is that part of the appeal? It's part of it, actually... Um, definitely, uh, uh, and but there's more to Hegel than than that that's relevant to what I think, namely that he he inherited from Kant the idea of the free individual subject as the centre of one's world, but he also argued that you you aren't born as a free individual subject, you become that, and you become it through your relations with others. Yeah, network uh, of relationships. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. through contest. You know, uh, uh, and this contest is a complex, deep archaeological process, in uh, archaeological uh, layer, rather, in our psyche. The, uh, and the argument that he, famous argument that he gave about the master and the slave, um, which was not about telling us that we all are masters or slaves, but that this contest between the master and the slave uh, is something we go through, all of us go through in the course of our development. Uh, And if we haven't gone through it properly uh, and have not um, emerged with the the idea of 
reconciliation under through mutual recognition, then we haven't really obtained our freedom fully. You might have to explain very briefly the master and the slave well, to those people that are listening right. that have never come across okay, it. It's a complex argument, but the basic idea is you imagine uh, a state of nature in which people are in competition for the things that they desire and need. Um, they fight. And the the fight is to the death because there is no alternative offered to them. Uh, they haven't got yet to the stage where they can discuss this matter. Uh, one of them finally, the one who values his own life more than his uh, dignity, surrenders and then becomes slave to the master. But that master then uses this slave in order to enjoy the products of the earth and how can he do that? Only because the slave is involved in producing those things. And through producing, the slave imprints his, his uh, nature upon the, his surroundings, becomes conscious of himself, and gains a half of freedom, the, the, namely the half that is self-consciousness. And that enables him, in due course, to rise up and enslave the master. And this process goes backwards and forwards until finally the solution is, as it were, not emerges by uh, an invisible hand. Uh, and the solution is to recognize, <laughs> to recognize each other as free and confer that freedom on each other uh, and, um, and thereafter to engage in one's life through agreements and compromises. It's very interesting. It sounded to start with when you first start talking about this, it sounds like Marx, and then it slips into Adam Smith. Well, uh, <laughs> these, there's a shared agenda between all three thinkers, it has to be said. Uh, and Marx's um, early writings are simply commentaries on the master and slave dialectic. Anyway, I, I, I've always taken that argument to heart and recognised that while we esteem individual freedom, and rightly... And because without it, we're not taking responsibility for our lives and for, or for the people around us. While we esteem that, we can only enjoy it because we have also um, accepted our membership of a larger world and a larger community. And then, and then you take that master-slave argument and then that gets translated into the realm of economics as well. Yes, into economics and the family. Uh, uh, I've all, perhaps because my family was uh, so dysfunctional, I've always esteemed the family as the thing to which one must aspire and which one must try to obtain. And um, it could be said that I didn't obtain it for, for an, um, through so much of my adult life. And I, I only... In my second marriage, which was my only successful marriage, um, occurred when I was fifty. You know. Um, do you do you have it now? Do you have do you have that? What you're looking for? Um, yes, of course. Insofar as uh, someone with a you know a, a, an inadequate nature like 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 mine can have it. You know, I, I recognise the. If I don't have it completely, it's because of the faults that I've acquired through my um, th I, I, through fighting against things too much. Oh, right. But yes, I mean, uh, uh, you're a casualty of the battles that you fought. Well, you don't emerge from life without scars, and or if you do, there's something wrong with you. Um, but yes, I have um, had quite a lot of battles. 
And you're, I mean, you've been having them recently as well. Yes, I've had, well, it's, I've been having them in the sense that people have been fighting me. I haven't fought back. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm a, a hate figure for a certain kind of half-educated, uh, uh, politically correct person. Yeah. And the, and the, and and the, I mean, I think it's, I think it's worth us just having one minute at least to right. talk about to talk about this because some of the things that you've been accused of was um, the the Soros comment about that that it was a comment of that, that grew out of some sort of anti-Semitism in you and uh, yeah and uh, um, yes that was true um, <clears throat> because it, it, but if you you know if you have one sentence taken out of a speech uh, which actually was about how difficult it is for Hungary to have a to build a nation state because of the legacy of anti-Semitism. You know, I was actually saying the opposite of, of that and how this has uh, come to a fore because of the um, the Soros network and the way in which um, that has collided with the programs of the government and so on. Uh, yeah, that, uh, I said things which if you take one sentence out of context, someone might say that's anti-Semitic or um, because you... Uh, well, you have to look at it in context. It's so obviously not. But um, there's a sort of malice about this uh, way of sifting through speeches and uh, and um, writings to, to find a sentence which, uh, when deprived of its context, can be turned into an accusation. Uh, and it shows uh, a, a total degeneracy in the standards of public debate in this country. Have we lost a, a generosity of interpretation? Well, uh, or even a, an ability to interpret because uh, people don't read. You know, uh, there was this peculiar person who happens to be a Labour MP and even a front bench spokesman who who was provided with these snippets from things I had said in order to create a case against me. But when uh, asked on the radio, um, you know, had he read this speech? He said no. <laughs> you know, he'd read this one sentence, um, uh, which, the, uh, which in context uh, is completely harmless. But um, what can one do? Uh, I, uh, the, my, my feeling is that um, when you when subject to these attacks, first of all, you should remember it's only right-wing people who are subject to this kind of attack. Um, nobody would dream of doing this to an ordinary left-wing thinker. Um, the thought being that it, you know that uh, somehow we are legitimate targets. But when subjected to this uh, kind of attack, you have to remember that that there is a larger context in human nature you know that you are not you're not there because you've said something in, that somebody's objecting to you're there because who of who you are you you're there like like oedipus under his accusers you know um uh, someone's going to accuse you of incest, like as Marie Antoinette, for instance, was accused, or uh, of um, you know some similar pollution, uh, and it's you who are the object of attack. You are the uh, the scapegoat, and um, you know this is a, st a standard feature of the human condition that when society, when pe people who live in a state of inner conflict. Um, 
want to objectify that conflict by finding a target and destroying him. And that's what I recognized. This has happened. And what do you do then? Um, the, you, you don't allow yourself to be destroyed, but you do, if you're a Christian, you remember the great example that we were given, uh, uh, that um, the person who was destroyed but said in the process of it, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I think that is absolutely right, that, that the scapegoat mechanism is there in everybody. Everybody wants to, when troubled, to find a target and destroy it. And if you, if you happen to be that target, you've got to remember that example, if you're a Christian, or remember, if you're a Muslim, all those passages in the Quran where you are told to speak peaceful, peacefully to the, to the ignorant. I know this sounds a bit um, moralistic to say it that way, but I don't, I, don't, I don't think you can respond in any other way because... because um, scapegoating is a fundamental part of the religious experience it has a, a religious origin and a, and a religious solution so it's, so it's there you should look for the solution not not by fighting back or anything like that sounds like Girard it is Girard of course I'm, I'm influenced very much by him great thinker mm. um, can I talk to you a little bit about um, capitalism and, and mm. money just a little bit about that because I uh, though I, I share uh, quite a lot of your, um, uh, in a way, I share quite a lot of your conservative instincts, um, being religious, family, place, a mm. uh, lot of those instincts I share. But I see one of the things that um, destroys that rather than um, enables it to flourish is a sort of overvaluation of the market. Mm. Um, and I've always, it's always puzzled me that conservatives are so enthusiastic about the greatest change agent the world has ever known, which is capitalism, mm. and how those two things come together. It is a great question. I mean, it is the question of our time in many ways. Um, and I think one should take a long view of this. The word capitalism came in with Saint-Simon, I think, and it was picked up by Marx and made into a kind of, uh, it was sloganized. it was made into a description of a system. And the idea is that this is a system in which people, which grips people uh, and has a kind of uh, identity of its own. It's, it's going on churning out its results without um, any human interference. And we need a rival system. And so we get the capitalism versus socialism thing which is in itself extremely misleading because capitalism is not a, direct, a, di a directed system. It's not even, a, it, it, as Adam Smith wisely says, it, it arises by an invisible hand. It's a byproduct of our free choices and not a, itself a thing that's chosen, whereas socialism is completely the opposite of that. It's not a byproduct of free choices. It is something which is itself chosen and then constrains our free choices. Both of them have huge defects. Um, capitalism has the great advantage that it seems to be constantly generating wealth. It doesn't distribute it very fairly, that's entirely true, um, but it does generate it. Uh, socialism, which is determined to, to distribute wealth fairly, 
seems to fail to generate any wealth to, to distribute in the first place. So um, there are real problems here as to what position one should take. Uh, and, uh, and I'm sort of basically persuaded by the what has become the norm in Western societies that that of course you have to have a free economy because otherwise people have no incentive to produce anything. But the products of that free economy must uh, can't be simply distributed by the people who produce them. Uh, we must have other mechanisms for looking after those who, do, who don't or are incapable of producing something or, or for some reason are pushed to the mar margins. Exactly what those processes should be is, uh, is a real question. I think putting too much emphasis on the redistributed redistributive state is dangerous because then the people who are charged with redistributing things, the bureaucrats, they do indeed redistribute things, but to themselves on the whole. You know, they create the privileged liberal elite which gets all the rewards and then that leads to the, the kind of the Brexit situation where the ordinary uh, person finds that indeed everything has been redistributed but he hasn't got anything. Um, it, there should be a we should work much harder on how on the spontaneous ways in which people do re look after each other and redistribute their benefits and also live properly uh, um, in an atmosphere in an attitude of generosity uh, and um, that is where the consumer society attaches people far too strongly to their material um, products and I think we need to you know calm down a bit um, can I give you an example yeah. especially as your new interest in housing not new interest but your mm. you know the, 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 post the, I've been yeah. you've been interested in it for a while yeah. <laughs> but your your new role in um, so as you know you've been to my church and at the elephant and castle mm. you played the organ you played carols yeah. <laughs> um, but so in that part, in the Elephant of Castle, it was obviously flattened after the war, that yes. area. And then there were sort of bigger states that were, were yes. put up that were um, ugly, brutal, eventually mm. dangerous because um, people didn't invest in them. Mm. They did have a sense of community about them, but they mm. were still uh, they were still tough yeah. places to live in. These have now been pulled down mm. and in their place very expensive tower blocks have been put mm. up that actually local people don't live in, that are often owned by uh, people living in China or in yeah, Singapore. Yeah. And so my parish is often is full of, is full of flats where the lights never go on. Mm. Now, in, you know, in, for a conservative to want to talk about, you know, community and all those sorts of things... I don't know how I'm the vicar of a community in a in a place yeah. where the lights are never on. I think uh, the, the question, the, well, the problem that you've uh, raised here is not one problem. Um, there has been an irresponsible attitude to ownership um, that has developed partly as a result of the European Union, uh, which um, does not regard land as it in any way special. It's just a, a, a capital asset like anything else. So it could be owned by anyone. It can own, be owned by someone who's not a citizen of the country 
um, uh, and who never visits, etc. So it's just become a commodity. Yes, and that, I think, is the th deeply alien to the conservative worldview. The, the land belongs to the people, uh, the people whose land it is. Uh, and, you know, we, and this was embodied in the English law, the land belongs to the sovereign. Uh, uh, who grants leases on it to his to this to his subjects? Uh, but that has gone because of largely because of the European Union, uh, and it means that anybody can own anything anywhere. T tell me how it's gone because of the European Union. Because of the free, uh, the the three freedoms: the freedom of movement of of labour, capital, uh, and um, and land, uh, and the freedom of assets, uh, uh, land being one of them. Um, so that these freedoms uh, enable any citizen of the European Union to own a piece of, of land anywhere in it, but it also uh, um, has opened the door to people from outside the European Union owning bits and pieces, like the Russian mafia owning whole chunks of London. Uh, and if you were a member of the Russian mafia, you would, because there's no point in living in Russia, in that, that country where your rival mafiosi um, are, are likely to bump you off at any time. So we are havens for the criminal elites of the rest of the world. How to stop that is a great question. I'm not saying that that, that there is an easy solution. Was Brexit partly an attempt well, to stop well, that? Well, it wasn't an attempt to, because it was a, a it was a cry from the yes. depths. Yes, let's yes, face yes, it. yes, 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 yes. Um, but it, it, it connects with the the problem that you're referring to. Uh, after the war, there was a, a huge housing shortage because people were coming back from the war. That a lot of properties had been destroyed, and all, all the rest. And it was natural that the government felt obliged to provide ho housing for people who, who, without it, especially those who had given everything for the s salvation of their country. And it was not just in England this occurred; all across Europe. Um, and it, un it, unfortunately, this coincided with the. Um, Modernist takeover of the of the architectural establishment, uh, and so, and, and that's particularly um, exemplified by Elephant and Castle, where the Smithsons took over the whole uh, uh, reconstruction of the place, uh, and they were imbued with the Bauhaus ethos, which was an ethos produced by elite people in Germany in the wars, who didn't have to live in the things that they were building. Uh, and, uh, and machines it, for living in it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it caused. Us, uh, we're still living with the legacy of that. After, that first of all, the destruction of of the East End of London. Okay, bombing did a bit of it, but much less than the uh, the council local councils just swept everything away. Beautiful Georgian streets that could easily have been rehabilitated and which were capable of containing far more people per hectare than the things put in their place. But, you know, it all went in a certain direction. And uh, that, and we're now suddenly facing up to this because we've got to build a lot more houses and, uh, and the ordinary person is objecting to the kind of houses that are built. So what are we going to do? So um, as you see, the problem has a social uh, aspect, an aesthetic aspect and a political aspect. And it will, it's not going to be solved just like that. And 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 are are the sort of glass boxes that are becoming ubiquitous yeah. in London? Are they a a sort of just a reinvention of that machines for living in type well, of philosophy? It, uh, uh, we have to see. Um, 
if you're struggling to find somewhere to live and some suddenly someone gives you a glass box to live in, you're going to say yes. Of course. Um, uh, but in 10 years' time, when the joints have, have, have begun to loosen and the, uh, uh, and the staircases are polluted and... Uh, you know, uh, and the criminal gangs are living in the various uh, stories, etc. You won't feel the same. Um, and there's a real question, uh, therefore, as to whether first was the question as whether high-rise buildings are going to be the solution at all. You know, what, what is interesting is that that uh, above the third floor of a, of any high-rise high building, the majority of, te of tenants will be housing association or or um, some other form of social housing tenants. People don't voluntarily live uh, in, in those sort of buildings. And that's, um, so there are real questions. And we don't, and not enough research has been done as, uh, uh, as to what people really do want. And um, it I, can't be, it can't, I mean, like you say research needs to be done, but it, it can't it can't be rocket science. No, no. That, that I mean that people need space. They yeah, need yeah, outside that, that, space. That, that, of they course, need... they, that's right. But for instance, uh, what was not realised by the 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 Bauhaus type modernists was that um, that people actually need streets. Uh, the street is the most important part of the public arena for for most people. It's where they meet each other. It's where, you know, where they, and it's from the street that they see the house and, and get a sense of, that they are part of a larger community. Uh, a high-rise block is not a community, um, and people don't necessarily even know who is their neighbour. Yeah. Uh, so that you know, um, these are really interesting questions where they touch on something which has concerned me. I mean, the second book that I wrote. The first book that it was the first book I wrote from my heart actually was the aesthetics of architecture about which was my attempt to address what my father felt most deeply about, which was the ruination of the uh, uh, urban. Did he live in fabric. tenements? Was he no, a sort of no, tenement he, type of? Uh, we started off in a little semi-detached post-war uh, rubble house, um, but graduated to a Georgian terrace, and that was he, um, his great achievement. Um, uh, but yes, it, I mean, he, he, I, I felt very strongly about this, and that book that I wrote then, in, in, and it was published in 1979, that has remained in print ever since. Um, there's a the sort of um, uh, your critics might say there's a bit of Prince Charles about all yeah. of this, which is a sort of um, which is an, a sort of overestimation of sort of Georgian. Hmm. And it, that, it, that it might sort of look a bit like a pastiche if it... Uh... Yeah, yeah, this is the normal criticism that's made. Um, but that is, again, part of the name-calling culture, isn't it? I mean, it's people refusing to discuss an issue and... Um, uh, you know, and using Prince Charles as another label. That was I was just trying to introduce yeah, yeah. it that way. But I mean, no, in, no. in a way, I just the substantive issue is that, you know, I mean, I couldn't think of anything lovelier than living in a Georgian vicarage. You know, I mean, yes. I would, I yes. it would be the I most know. beautiful. But it, when someone starts to build, sort of copies, yeah. of them, the, the, there is something sort of toy townish about them. That's, that is said, and it depends on the kind of copy. I see. Uh, 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 you know. Architecture is 
different from all the other arts in that it, uh, you are compelled to look at it. You're not compelled to look at Tracy Emin's bed, for instance, or to, to listen to the latest piece by George Kurtak. You know, you can, um, you can get through life without being invaded by those things, but you can't get through life without being invaded by the buildings around you. So it does really matter uh, how they look to everyone. Uh, and people have a sense of what looks nice and what, what does not. Um, and this is one reason why uh, architecture is so bound up with imitation. It's not. It's, it isn't new. Uh, the, the 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 Romans imitated the Greeks and were imitated in due course by the Gothic um, uh, architects of the Middle Ages, and at the Renaissance, people went back to imitating the Romans again. Um, there's never been a radical break until the modernists, uh, and we're living with what they did, and we know that what they did was wrong. Uh, because it, it has produced alienating cities from which people flee. Um, uh, and we don't necessarily think that everything they did was wrong, but they did something wrong, and that's really what the problem that we have to confront. So your attitudes to architecture grow out of your deeper conservative principles? Yes, or, or, or deeper, I would say, out of my humanity. Um, and my conservative principles are another expression of that. Um, and, of course, the critics of conservatism always want to brand it as a somehow an inhuman thing, that it's all about uh, defending oppression and class distinctions and so on. But my view is that, properly understood, it is a, a humane vision of the world. Yes, I mean, I, I get that right up until the point where... Uh, I know you've, you've said that you think capitalism has become a sort of well, it's become a boo word and it was... Uh, mm. But the way in which market forces, and you, you talk about how yeah. they generate wealth well, but they also open up this huge gap between... Yes, between um, rich the, and poor, know, yes. And, and, I mean, part of, my, part of my anxiety is actually about relative poverty. Yeah. You know, so absolute poverty, I'm sure, is, is, is addressed through capitalism. Mm. But relative poverty is, is a, should be a sort of a challenge to a one-nation type of vision. I know, it is. Um, when, you know, you have... You know, when I was a vicar of... I was a vicar in Warsaw uh, in an outer-city council estate, desperate place, a desperate place, and the, the connections between that place and, you know, London, where I live and love, is just... This, this, this isn't, there's no one-nationness about this at all. No. These are different planets. Well, I, I would say <clears> about that that... Um, again, one must make comparative judgments. Um, is it better under a, a, a another system, and if so, what system? You know, I, I was always impressed when I, in the old days, in the Cold War days, um, by the fact that a general in the American army was paid something like five times as much as a private. In the Soviet army, he was paid 250 times as much, wow. uh, you know, because their control was what determined how much you were paid. And this is still true in Russia today. You know, the, the, the rich in Russia are not just rich. They are super rich, and their money is not kept in the country. It's kept elsewhere, so it doesn't benefit anybody in that country either. 
Um, I'm in favour of there being rich people, provided they spend spend it all the time on (laughs) on employing others and giving them the chance that they are looking for. We're supposed to be savers, aren't we? I mean, that's what the ordinary people should be savers, but the rich, when they've got to the stage where they don't need to save anymore, they've got to throw it away. And that's um, uh, what, you know, um, it's difficult to say uh, what um, Christ said about this, you know, that uh, it's easier to pass through, uh, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the, enter the kingdom of heaven. But as soon as you look at it, of course it's, that's true, because when you enter the kingdom of heaven, if you ever get there, uh, you haven't got any possessions anyway. Um, the possessions are here to use in this earth and to use wisely, but also generously. Uh, and throwing them away is as good a use as anything else. Would that, would that be a would that be good uh, argument for having sort of greater inheritance uh, tax? Uh, uh, no, because a, a greater inheritance tax, in my view, is a huge mistake. It takes away, first of all, from pe- people. Um, the motive to get wealthy. Throw it away, you say, though. Yeah, I mean. but throw it away when you've got to a certain stage. Right. But one of the motives is, of course, to provide for your children. Um, but it's not only that. It's, a, it's economically a mistake. The, the money that's confiscated at your death, if it was given to your children, they would use it much more wisely than the state, and they would use it to do things which will produce a regular income through taxation, whereas the state will just lose it. And I think this has been proved by comparative studies, you know. Anyway, that's another yeah, I, issue. <laughs> but, um, is, is the current Conservative Party conservative? Well, um, it contains quite a lot of conservative people, and I, I think Mrs May is, a, you know, she, in her instincts, is conservative. Uh, obviously, she's in a very difficult position at the moment. Um, but um, th- there were plenty of conservative people in the old Labour Party. Someone like Frank Field, Frank Field yeah. or Maurice Glassman. You know, yeah. these are these are uh, all that movement, the Blue Labour movement, is probably more in keeping with my kind of conservatism than most of what goes on in the Conservative Party. That's probably where I'd situate myself. Yes, actually. but uh, you know, that's a. Yeah, but conservatism isn't a party political thing for me. Well, I have to say it was fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much indeed for well, uh, for uh, for going through all of that. That was um, that was much fun. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it, and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com.